Uh, today's reading is from 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 13, verse 1 through to 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but not have love, I am a nausea gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or, resent or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But for we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now, we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So my faith, hope, love, abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. May God bless the reading of his word. Good afternoon. Um, so my name's Adam. I'm also part of the uh, students and young adults group here at St. George's Tron. Um, hopefully I've met most of you before and looking around, I think I have. But if I haven't met you before, it would be a pleasure to sit down and have a chat with you after the service. Uh, before we get started, I just want to mention, uh, you've heard a little bit about 10.8, and hopefully you've seen some of the uh, photos of what we've been up to this week. And a uh, few of us from the Young Adults Group were uh, giving our time this week and volunteering with those various charities. Um, but we were only giving um, part of our time. We were only giving one week. Um, but while I was out and about, I think I met four or five different members of this church who were out as part of the routine of their week uh, they were out serving God and seeing his kingdom here in Glasgow. Uh, so I just want to say thank you. It's so humbling to be a part of a congregation who's so actively involved in all of these things. So this week, Callum and I are tasked with addressing this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, the passage all about love. And it's an easy task in some sense um, because it's a familiar passage. We hear it all the time. Um, and a lot has been said on this passage but it's a difficult task in a few more ways because it is this famous passage, because um, we are familiar with it. We tend to go in with our own presuppositions as to what this says. I know I struggle with that when I came to read this myself. Of course, it's the wedding passage. Um, I think the majority of people um, who marry choose to read this passage of scripture. I was just at a wedding in here last week where I was doing sign and I was sitting at the back. It was, um, as I believe, one of Alistair's old friends was doing the sermon. 
and um, it was a non-Christian couple getting married, so I can only assume that most of the people in here uh, weren't too familiar with their scriptures. But I was sitting at the back, and it was a lot of people hearing this passage for the first time, and I was interested to see what the response would be, and as the minister started to read through this, as no one has just read for us, I saw everyone sort of creep forward in their seats, and heads tilted forward, and hands came up, and as he finished off, there was just a resounding, oh, you know? And uh, I think everyone, everyone can appreciate that this is a lovely passage of Scripture. It's really nice. But because we hear it mainly in the context of marriage, we sometimes miss something. Of course, a brief read at this passage, we will see that indeed it does not mention the word husband, wife, or marriage. So where does this sit in the wider context? Well, we've been, anyone who's been with us for the past couple of months will know that this is Paul's letter to the church in Corinth and probably know most of Alistair's brief introduction as to the context of this. So hopefully I can give it a wee sentence. Uh, Corinth was a busy portside city. It was a crossing point, a trade route, and there was lots of unethical things going on uh, in and amongst all of that, much like Glasgow is today, as I'm sure you will all know. So where does this passage lie in this letter? Um, well, I myself had just finished up a math degree, uh, four years at Glasgow, but it did not take me my math degree to tell you that chapter 13 lies immediately after chapter 12 <laughs> and immediately before chapter 14. So what is this surrounded by? Uh, we read last week that chapter 12, uh, Paul outlines spiritual gifts that God readily grants his people um, according to his will. So not everyone equally, but God does give everyone their own spiritual gifts. And chapter 14, which we'll delve into next week, Paul details quite in-depth instructions on how to dispense these spiritual gifts. So that's where we're sitting in this letter. And chapter 13 sort of stands out from both of those. It doesn't specifically mention uh, the word spiritual gifts. Um, so what is this talking about? If you read the last verse of chapter 14, so, sorry, last verse of chapter 12, but earnestly desire the higher spiritual gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And the first verse of 14, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So there's a complete logical continuation between these chapters, both in the context of Paul talking about spiritual gifts and in the language that he chooses to use. And chapter 13 sticks out like a big sore thumb. So what are we to do with this chapter? Paul generally has quite a systematic and apologetic approach to his letters, and this is distinctly different, the poetic language he uses here. Um, so are we then to take this as a standalone, irrelevant passage that has nothing to do with spiritual gifts with which it is surrounded? Or does Paul take this time and use this language so as the church in Corinth doesn't jump to chapter 14 to find out all about how they can use these spiritual gifts? And does this love letter of Paul's compete completely and perfectly encapsulate the very premise with which we are to practice our spiritual gifts? And you might sense from my tone that I'd argue for the latter. So hopefully we'll convince you of that today. Firstly, we know that Paul knows that the church in Corinth practice spiritual gifts. 
In chapter one of this same letter, reading from verse five, Paul writes, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's speaking to a church that already practiced these things. But yet Paul decides to dedicate three chapters, 12, 13, and 14 of this letter, to teach them about spiritual gifts. Now, it wasn't divided up into chapters when it was written, but uh, we can see just the proportion that Paul writes on this issue. Paul sees that although they were outwardly expressing their God-given gift, there is something missing there. Secondly, it is possible to have and to practice spiritual gifts without knowing the God from which they come. Uh, One of the amazing ways that God works is um, while I was looking at this and figuring out what sort of angle we might want to take on this, uh, during my readings uh, in the morning, I was working my way through Matthew and I came to Matthew 7, which fits in perfectly here. Reading from verse 21, the words of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Are these not spiritual gifts that we've been talking about and quite impressive ones at that? Prophesy, casting out demons, doing many mighty works. And yet Jesus says to these people, I knew your works, but I did not know you. See, Jesus has the unique ability to know a person's heart, to know the motivation from which their works come. Matthew and Paul in his letter are both addressing people that are all about kingdom building. They're all about loving people and their works. But yet they have the wrong motivation They idolize the gifts above the gift giver and they desire the spiritual gifts without the fruit of the spirit, the first of which being love. We talked a little bit about love uh, when we did the service last year, looking at 1 John. Um, And we mentioned that biblical love is really a choice. God chooses to love us. If you read Ephesians 1, I think it says something along the lines of, um, I'm going to mess this up. Um, In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons of Jesus. And it's a choice that God reaches out. Uh, And the Greek word here is agape. It's uh, well beyond the time that we have or beyond my comprehension to mention all of the Greek words for love that we come across. But the word agape is choosing to seek the well-being of the recipient of your love without the expectation of anything in return. It's not a love that's driven by feelings or emotions. It's not a romantic love. It's not a brotherly companionship love, but it's a self-giving love. It's the love that God has for his people, his children, and the love that God calls us to give back to him. I haven't actually read any of the passage yet, so let's do some of that. 
Um, I want to mention an interesting trinity of metaphors that Paul uses in the first three verses of this letter. So anyone who has a Bible with you, if you just uh, read along with me here. He starts, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, so hinting at spiritual gifts there, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So during this, Paul introduces some very exaggerated and hyperbole in his language um, to make the point, to get the church in Corinth to stop and think about their spiritual gifts before they jump into how do we use them. And he says, if I do not have love, we are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, i.e. we produce nothing of value. He goes on, and if I have prophetic powers, their spiritual gifts again, prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So there we have nothing of value if we do not have love. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, here we have sacrificial offering, but have not love, I gain nothing. So there we have, we receive nothing of value without love. And it's jurastic language. It's meant to stand out. It's meant to um, grab your attention and make you stop and think about what Paul is writing here. We produce nothing of value if we miss the point of love. We have nothing of value and we receive nothing of value. Of course, Paul's not literally talking about moving mountains. He's using images that uh, stand out, that grab their attention, that make them stop. And I want to dwell on this first verse for a little minute here. If we, if we do not have love, if we miss the point, we produce nothing of value. And I was uh, thinking about this this week, particularly as part of the 10-8 uh, crowd here. And um, we had, I think, 16 different churches come together, about 40 or 50 students. And each morning we received, we received teaching and we worshipped together. And um, I was challenged worshipping with other people because um, I'm naturally quite shy and self-conscious. And, you know, I'd much rather stand at the back and not have anyone hear me singing because I think that would be not, not good. Or, um, or see what I'm doing. But I was just reminded that, you know, worship is primarily between myself and God. It doesn't matter who I'm surrounded by. There's no need to be self-conscious. And to a certain extent, um, that's true. But our worship is an outward expression of love. And if our worship is not an outpouring of our praise, adoration, and love for God, then Paul is saying we produce nothing of value in our words and in our actions. So we have decisions to make there in our worship, in our service, in how we use our gifts that God gives us. If we do not come, if, the, if these things do not come from a love for God, then our words and actions become empty. Just this week, uh, the whole premise of it was that we receive um, from God first before we can go out and show God's love for the community. Because without that, um, it becomes community service and friendship rather than kingdom building and fellowship. If we miss that point. Spiritual gifts are a form of giving. 
their, if you like, a horizontal love to those around you, to the people, to the places. And we know what we're giving for. We're giving to see more of God's kingdom. We're giving for God to restore this city of Glasgow. As I was saying, there's so many people out in their daily lives giving to God. But we have to ask, what are we actually giving from? Because, of course, giving implies that we have received. And hence the table talk this morning. I'm glad so many people picked up on that. Our... um, motto for the week was 10-8 based on Matthew 10-8. Freely you have received, so freely give. Or you received without pay, so give without, you received without paying, so give without pay. See, this prerequisite to our horizontal love is a vertical love, a love that comes from God. And if we don't receive that first, we have nothing to give out of. And it's so easy to get excited about seeing God's kingdom here and building God's kingdom here and he invites us to be a part of that but if we don't have anything to receive to give out of it's so easy to run dry see Paul is speaking to a church in Corinth that are all about the horizontal love they're all about the gifts and practicing the gifts but they've lost sight of the vertical Last year we read 1 John, um, reading from chapter 4. Quite familiar words, which I'm very thankful have already been mentioned. From verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And so, as we already mentioned, God is our definition maker, our point of reference, our perfect example and manifestation of love itself in the person of Jesus. And Paul is encouraging the church in Corinth to do something which I think we'd all be very thankful to do. He's encouraging them to stop, to take a break, to stop being so, so much about their outward expression without actually giving from anything. God allows us to um, receive from him and to receive from him freely. And so sometimes we just need to take the time to sit down and ask God to work in us, ask God to fill us anew. And so I just challenge you this week to think about your vertical love before you go out into your life and try and build God's kingdom here, although that is so important. I just challenge you to sit down and receive because God gives it freely to you. What, um, what a passage. Uh, I think there is, there is definitely a reason that this, uh, that this passage is so beloved, so quoted um, countless times at many a wedding and far beyond. It's, uh, it's, it's almost like some kind of fantasy epic uh, of a description of, of love. It, it almost, in some ways, seems too good to be true. And as uh, Adam wonderfully uh, took us through the beginning, um, I'm going to bring us a little bit towards the kind of second half um, of this passage. I'm just going to reread it um, to kind of think it through, starting at verse 4, and just reread us a little bit more of uh, 1 Corinthians. Love is patient. It's kind. It does not envy and it does not boast. It is not proud. 
It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always preserves. Love never fails. But where prophecies, they will cease. And where the tongues, uh, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part will disappear. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away, put behind childhood things. For now, we only see a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know in full, even as I am fully known. And now these three things will remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. A uh, a truly powerful and wonderful, wonderful words. Uh, and as uh, as Adam mentioned, um, the word that we're kind of the, the word love that it's uh, kind of reflected, mentioned time and again within this passage is that of agape, which um, is kind of the highest form of love. If we're looking at what love can be at its greatest, then that's a little bit of what love is. And I think we can see that within this passage. I don't know if there's any of us here who, if you were to think through what it was, if you wanted someone to love you, if you wanted to, a description of how they could act towards you. Are these not the kind of words that you would hope for? Are these not the kind of uh, actions that you would want of patience and kindness, not self-seeking? Is this not what we desire and what we hope for? If we're being honest, deep down inside, this kind of love passionately for us. And I really particularly get caught on um, verse 7, which in some, uh, it says in the NIV, um, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always preserves. Some may also recognize it as bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What a powerful picture of what love could be. I kind of wanted to have a little bit of a look through some of those words, just kind of meandering over them, thinking them through, trying to understand the kind of depth of what Paul was getting at. We start off with, uh, with, with bears, uh, all things. That, that word there that we find kind of behind it in the Greek is, um, I'm never going to pronounce things terribly well, but stegio is how I understand it, or there's a different tense sometimes on the end of it. But it, in essence, it means to cover. Um, to cover is the kind of underlying word. So it, it, love covers all things. It's a shield. It's a protection. It's a, it's, a, it's a kind of defense against whatever else is out there. Love protects, believes all things. This one I definitely can't pronounce, but it goes with a P. So you can trust me on that and look it up if you want. Um, but believes all things. It's this fullness of trust. It's this complete trust. It's, it's the kind of thing that you can rely on. It's a belief in another that you can wholeheartedly depend on. Hopes. This one I found particularly interesting. It, it, the, the notion that it, that's kind of brought out behind in the Greek, the, the word that we find here is it's it's this kind of idea, the expectation of good things, that things will be good beyond where they are. 
and then finally endures. The idea that it will not surrender. Love doesn't ever give up. It is one incredible picture of what love can be, what, what love should look like, what, what love can look like. But here's the thing. I don't know about you, but I would imagine if I was to get a raising of hands, and for this one I will not because it's probably quite depressing, but I think all of us, if we're honest, have experienced a more broken version of love than all that, where our love hasn't, it hasn't met that mark. It's not always been uh, patient or kind, where, where we or, or others have been mean or selfish who haven't protected so many of these things. I'm sure many of us can sit and think of moments where that was not our experience of love. And so a question comes, how do we understand this passage in relation to how we love, how we have understood and known love? I wanted to share a little story, which might sound a bit weird, but it will get there in the end, I promise. Um, as a, I, along with kind of being here, I'm also a youth worker and have been for, for many years. Um, and one of the ways, if you ever want to gather youth workers together, um, is to have bacon. It's uh, just a general rule of thumb. If you ever want to gather some youth workers, uh, provide some bacon. Um, and uh, when I was down in Troon, uh, kind of down in Ayrshire, um, there used to be a kind of youth workers prayer breakfast, which happened once a month. It gathered youth workers from across different churches, different denominations. We came together, we ate a lot of bacon, and we also prayed, which was an important part of it. But the, the bacon was good too. Um, and I still remember one, one prayer, which, which has stood out to me, um, but probably not for the reasons that prayers are meant to stand out. And it was one lad who was a lovely lad, um, really nice guy, um, I won't mention his name in case someone actually knows him, but um, a little bit of a kind of more um, hippie-ish character, I think, is the way I can best describe him. But he's very chill, very relaxed, and, and we're praying away, and very powerful, wonderful prayers are going on for the work of youth that is going on around this area. And, and as kind of time comes, this lad um, prays. And his prayer went along these lines. Father God, I thank you that you are like the pigeon. <laughs> and then he went on in a long prayer about how God is like a pigeon, uh, to, to the bewilderment of an entire room full of trained youth workers, not quite understanding. And later on, we would ask him, what was going on? What was up with the pigeon? And he had no real reason. He was just walking down the street, and he saw a pigeon, and somehow that was, that was his prayer. But it got me thinking. There is a connection here, I promise. It got me thinking. Like, so often we are quick to, um, to, and I use it a lot, like metaphors, pictures to help us understand God. We might say that, that God is like the mountain. It's a, a strong picture. Or we, we might want to say that God is like maybe like a fire um, or God is like a river. There's so many like, different pictures, different words of, of creation that we maybe use to help us understand what God is like or what an aspect of his character is like. But someone once told me or challenged me on that because there's a mistake that we make. You see, we, it's, it's actually, I would argue, it's wrong to say that God is like fire. It's rather that fire is like God. It's wrong to say that God is like the mountain. No, the mountain is like God. And I hope you can understand where I'm coming to in this passage because our experience of love is not a full reflection of God's love. And that is a mistake that we should not ever make. 
It is so, so easy to think that because people out there have let us down in acts of love, because we have let others down in acts of love, that somehow that that love reflects on God's love. Friends, I promise you with all my heart, it does not. This passage is, it is one to hope for and how we can interact with people around about us, how we can show love. But it is also a picture of the wonder of God's love for us. A love that truly never fails. A love that is far beyond anything that we can un- understand or even hope for. It is far beyond what we deserve, but is a truly wonderful thing. Do not mistake human love for the love of God. And that, as Adam mentioned, as we consider it, has to be our starting point. A picture of perfect love. Of love at its absolute best. At love beyond what we can even imagine. It is something to hope for. Because as Paul goes on to bring us to in the, the second part of this passage... We are growing in that love. And yeah, we are still broken. We still fall over from time to time, some of us more than others. (laughs) But we do. We are not perfect expressions of that love. But the thing is, if I'm honest, I think, I hope, because of God's Spirit in me, I'm doing a better job of showing that love now than I did even five, ten years ago. It's a slow and it's a growing process. And I'm not perfect every day. None of us are. But... We have something to hope to. We have a picture of what love can be. And so we aspire to be like that picture. Not to beat ourselves up for the times when we don't love like that, but rather to run onwards, to pick ourselves back up, crucially, integrally within the context of this passage by his spirit, to love again. And it also comes with this wonderful picture, this wonderful promise that our love might be slightly tainted that we encounter on the everyday, but a day will come beyond this one. Uh, we might for now only see a pale reflection in a mirror, but one day we will look on and see and know completely what we only now know in part, the fullness and wonder of God's love for us and to live perfectly dwelling in that love. That is something to hope for. That is something to aspire to. It's something to live for. You are loved by God with a perfect love, far beyond any that you can understand. If you leave here with nothing else today, leave with that. With the memory, the knowledge, the understanding that you are loved. And so you're called to love. One and the same. We love because we are loved. For the thing that we know is that God is 